Dotnet Rocks episode 859 with guest Amir Rajan. Recorded live Thursday, March 14th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone 7, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl, it's Richard. It's good. Hey, what's up, man? I uh, am buying hardware again. Oh, no. What are you buying? Well, you know, I'm, I've only got three different internet connections coming into the house. Oh, uh, that's a shame. And for, and the speed keeps going up. So, yeah. we, we now have a pair of 100 megabit connections. Mm-hmm. And the route, and everything's redundant, you know, redundant power, redundant internet connections, so forth, except the router. The router that actually brings all that traffic in and, and allows it to be distributed and so forth, not redundant. Huh. And it's a few years old. It's a Cisco RV16 uh, for anybody who actually cares. Uh, basically, a discontinued device. And it cannot keep pace. And so, it was starting to freak out yesterday. It was uh, it, it would crash every about two or three minutes. And Yikes. literally, I had to throttle back my bandwidth to stop crashing the appliance. Wow. So I had to order a shiny new one. I found uh, a unit from Netgear that is actually a quad WAN router with uh, multi-IP support and so forth. So all the features that I need. So that's on its way to me. And probably next week, I'll be complaining about tearing my network apart again. You know, speaking of old hardware, uh, we should tell people that at Dev Intersection, which is just coming up here in April, mm-hmm. we're going to have a nostalgia room. Yeah, I'm amazed. I'm I'm I- amazed and terrified about this. Sponsored by Infragistics. They basically rounded up like a TRS-80, an Apple II, and a, a Commodore 64, and some, you know, small hardware, things that are working with games. And we're going to see if we can get some emulators in there. Uh, with your favorite old games, maybe some uh, MAME games or something like that. Yeah. And we're just going to have a good old time. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm just worried. This hardware is so precious. In the last TRS-80 I had that was still running, the traces were falling off the motherboard. I actually had to move it into a larger case that I had room to keep the wiring working. And I remember a girlfriend going by looking in there going, wow, it looked like R2-D2 threw up in there. Maybe it's because of the acidity in the air in Vancouver. I don't, I don't think that's From it all at all. From those mushrooms being vaporized by the lawnmowers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you like that one, huh? Be that as a Anyway, uh, if, I hope you're coming out to Dev Intersection. We're going to be there playing with these old machines. It's April 8th to 12th at the MGM Grand. Go to devintersection.com. Hey, uh, there's one other thing I got to tell you that's very cool. You know, we did this show on audio. Uh, with Mark Heath, yeah, which was a just fun published. show. Yeah. Well, anyway, I've got some old, uh, an old project that I re uh, regurgitated, for lack of a better word. It, it basically is a drum quantizer. Now, I'm going to explain what that is. Anybody who's done any MIDI programming knows that quantizing means lining up notes to their respective closest beat. So that something that is played sloppily can sound like it's played perfectly. But it's very difficult to do with digital audio. You know, when you have seven, eight tracks of drums, uh, it's very difficult to, to first of all, find where the, you know, it, there's a lot of math involved in trying to line up those uh, drum hits to the beats. And then, you know, trying to seamless, seamlessly 
uh, make it all sound like one, uh, you know, like a good performance. So I've actually got it working. I've got it working to the point where just uh, uh, hits that are behind the beat. In other words, late. You know, if I if I hit a snare drum just a little bit late after the beat, it'll line it up perfectly. Huh. Now I got to go back and do the math for lining up uh, stuff that's early, and uh, but it looks like it's going to work. That's cool. It's very cool. And it basically, you just give it your uh, wave files. You tell it which is which. You pick uh, beats per minute, and you pick a um, you pick a sort of a time window and a, and a volume window. And you pick an output folder, and it basically spits out whole new files that you wow. can just copy into your project. Anyway, for the audio geek out there, I know that somebody is going, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else is like, come on, shut up, get to it. All right, better know framework. What do you got? What I have, what I got, more hipper than what you got. Mm. All right. The Node Toolbox. The Node Toolbox. NodeToolbox.com. A catalog of Node.js packages, tools, and resources with popularity ratings based on GitHub watchers and forks. And look at all the stuff that there's there. Wow, there's a ton. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that is really neat. Because, you know, not every JavaScript framework makes sense in Node. No, no, not at all. It's it's a different way of thinking about stuff. Yeah. uh, And, you know, you don't want client-side frameworks there. Yeah, no, it's good. It's neat. I did not know about this. Thank you. Yeah, it's a nice little, nice little collection of tools and links. NodeToolbox.com. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 821, which is the one we did on the road trip with John Papa talking about single page applications. How yeah. topical for today's episode. Absolutely. And this is a comment from uh, Johan Sundstrom. Oh, yeah. We've had emailed with before. Johan uh, Sundstrom won uh, a trip to TechEd Europe several years ago. Yeah, way back when. In Barcelona. Uh, remember Barcelona? That was so much fun. Yeah. Can't wait for the... We'll see what happens with the TechEd Europe this year. Uh, Johan says, you guys always rock, but this show is one piece of work. I love that you get down to the absolute essence of software development. In order to keep my edges sharp, I currently play around with environments where you can do a lot of stuff with REPL, which is R-E-P-L. Yep. Thanks to Closure, I'm dusting off my old skills that I should have learned in my SICP course in <laughs> really old days. That's, you know, old programming courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the functional programming mindset really changes how you build code in imperative languages as well. I agree with you that the current JavaScript development tools make it possible for you to work with a solution in a very interactive manner. And I would love it if you guys tackled REPL-like development in a Windows environment, because when you see someone mention REPL, you can be certain that he, she is doing a demo on OS X. I'm actually a happy OSX user myself, but I do think that Windows would deserve a little more love in this particular space as well. Regards from Johan. Yeah. Uh, okay, we'll do it. You know, I'm, I've been looking out for a show for a while there, and uh, we'll, we'll find the right way to go about that. But uh, appreciate your thoughts, Johan. And we think JavaScript development's getting pretty cool, too. Yeah, absolutely. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of the .NET Rocks mobile apps, both for iOS, Android, and WinPhone. They all allow you to write comments there as well. And they'll show up in the same system written by our fine friends at Diatom Enterprise. Absolutely. And don't forget to go to the tablet show for all of your, you know, speaking of JavaScript, talking about uh, phones and mobile apps and tablets and all that stuff. It's like .NET Rocks for mobile. 
thetabletshow.com. But before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial with giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything on the Microsoft stack, including courses on single-page applications. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, it is my extreme pleasure to introduce to you Mr. Amir Rajan. Amir is a principal consultant with Improving Enterprises. He is an active member of the development community and has expertise in ASP.NET MVC, HTML5, REST architectures, Ruby, JavaScript, CoffeeScript, Node.js, iOS, Objective-C, F-Sharp, WCF, Windows Phone, and Silverlight. Rest in peace. His words, not mine. Amir is a true polyglot with unwavering passion for software. Just check out his GitHub repository list if you don't believe me. And he's always striving to better the industry through open source contributions, training, and blogging. Welcome, Amir. Hey, how y'all doing? Doing great. We got an email from you a while ago saying, have you seen Oak? And, uh, you know, told us about it. And we were like, wow, had not seen that. Got to check it out. Tell us about Oak. So Oak is basically an augmentation to ASP.NET MVC, and it makes it to where C-sharp becomes more amicable to, to JavaScript. Um, it, it makes, it leverages a lot of the C-sharp dynamic constructs that are, that are available in C-sharp 4.0 and 4.5. And, um, makes that makes that work through and through with with data access validation uh just end to end makes makes c sharp more dynamic and more receptible to uh to javascript payloads and single page applications so does this and mean with c sharp that you can basically write uh write it in one language and that spreads f- from browser to middle tier to data code and all of that well, the, the idea behind it is, I guess, uh, the, J- the JSON payloads that come back, uh, the regular approach we've taken with MVC is to create a model binder that converts it to a C-sharp object and then go from there. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've decided to, instead of doing the model binders and, and all the mapping layers that we've, we've had to do with POCOs and uh, AutoMapper and going back and forth between objects, I just said, well, why can't we just take that JavaScript object and take that dynamic type and, and run with it throughout the rest of our system? Hmm. And it, and it works really well, uh, primarily because, and it's a lot of what I picked up from other languages of how they how they deal with dynamic typing and um, the pitfalls of not having compile time checking. So what Oak does is provide that augmentation and then subsequently provide a feedback loop that helps mitigate a lot of the risks that come with dynamic typing. All right, so this is C sharp based. So this isn't C sharp that writes JavaScript. No, no, this yeah. is this is all C sharp code and yeah. it's built upon ASP.NET MVC, so it's not a new web framework or anything, it's just a little bit of polyfill to to what MVC provides out of the box. Okay, so um so you're leveraging the DLR, but what uh, and you rattled off a whole list of features. Let's go slowly through, you know, uh what advantages you have over just using the DLR by itself. Okay. So the first, uh, the first and foremost uh, advantage is I've created a dynamic object that uh, basically bridges the gap between dynamic typing and static typing in C sharp. And uh, this this uh, object or this this class is available um, as a separate NuGet package. It's called Gemini, and this thing basically can 
it's the glue between static and dynamic typing. So what happens is is when you get a JavaScript payload coming from from jQuery or or Angular JS or Knockout or any any one of those frameworks uh, or Backbone, you'll you'll see that JavaScript payload comes over to the C sharp side, and instead of using the model the static model binders that are available in MVC, Gemini comes into play and then creates a dynamic type out of that that C sharp can interrupt with. Right. And that dynamic type is then used. Um, uh, it. it it uh, has the capabilities of actually uh, accepting plugins, so you can think of how jQuery everything hangs off a dollar sign, and you can just pick up a pick up a plugin from wherever, and then uh, add it to your solution, and then your jQuery object gets all these cool capabilities. Wow. Well, that's well, that's what Gemini does for C sharp. Right. So there's a there's plugins that are that come with Oak, just some default plugins to help with validation, with data access. Um, JSON serialization, uh, some of the some of the basic things that we would see in an MVC application, and those pl- uh, and then these dynamic objects that come back can actually have plugins mixed into them. So you don't really need inheritance. These things actually get decorated as they move through uh, as they move through these different layers. It's funny that you know we we spend a lot of time uh, talking about the the things that JavaScript lacks that C Sharp has, and this is sort of turning that on its head, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I just I just really liked um uh you know just being on the Rails stack and and looking at Node.js I really liked uh, a lot of the capabilities the language itself brought brought to the table mm. and you know C sharp 4.0 has the dynamic keyword it's got uh, dynamic object system dot dynamic object and mm. the I metadata provider so there's facilities that are already available to us we just haven't uh, really taken advantage of them and and this this bridges that gap and and shows that uh, there are inherent benefits to to having this hybrid dynamic static approach to to development. Now hang on, did you say Rails stack? Yeah, or the Ruby stack. So uh, I do Ruby on Rails development also and okay. um, and uh, what I when when I first started doing Rails development, the first thing I asked myself was how in the world can these guys uh, build out these complex web applications without having a compiler, a debugger. You know what? What's what are they doing that that allows them to uh, maintain these these applications, especially when they get really large? So I picked up quite a few tricks from uh, from the Rails community, and a lot of it is based off of just having a really really tight feedback loop at every level of your application. So at the testing level, um, if you look at the Rails server, you'll get information on uh, HTTP payloads that are coming over the wire, the SQL that's being generated, response times. So all these things give them immediate um, information about how the application works. And because they have all that, it, they have less of a need to actually uh, debug into an application or, or step into uh, pieces of code. Now, you require this. This does use Ruby, right? It does use Ruby. So uh, the Ruby that it uses is that is uh, for actually build automation. Mm-hmm. Um, I found I found it was it was really a challenge when it came to building these solutions in, in MVC. If I wanted to, let's say, deploy uh, to a local directory so I can have IS Express point to that and and you know run the app uh, independent of the of the of Visual Studio, I, I ended up having to put post build events inside of you know the properties window under the project itself. And that became really painful. It became hard to manage, maintain. If I wanted to do some custom post uh, post build processing, I would have to build MS build scripts or you know register some of the GAC if I wanted to create my own build extensions. So what Ray, what Ruby the part of Ruby that we use is actually Rake. Uh, Rake stands for Ruby Make, and what it does is it actually builds the application outside of Visual Studio. Okay, so Visual Studio is involved in the process then. 
Yes, you'll you still open up uh, open open up the application in Visual Studio. You know, write out your write out your source as you would always would, mm-hmm. and uh, and what happens is that you can still build inside of the solution and debug like you like you would with any any with any other MVC application. And then what Rake build, brings to the table is just some niceties: uh, regening the database, seeding sample data, uh, deploying to a local uh, a local directory to run IS IS against. And what also uh, another thing that I've added to Rake is the ability to simulate uh, round robin load balancing on a local instance. So I've had situations where where I'd use session in an application, and I want to make sure that that in a load balance environment that the way that I've used session actually works out correctly. Hmm. So with the simple rake task, uh, you can actually simulate a load balance environment and have your have your application deployed to two different ports and see it hop between the two. Interesting. And I mean I and I love that idea as a guy who's had to deal with lots of scaling. You know, I I've, I've been advocating always use external uh state storage right from the very beginning of your construction just so that you know you're serializing properly and nothing dumb is happening but you're actually running two instances of the app yep so that you're round robining between them so you really know are we passing this properly right and and again this comes back from what i learned from the uh, ruby and rails community and the node.js community uh, a lot of their they they use something called nginx it's it's a you know uh, a web server and i use it as a web uh, as a reverse proxy so I use Nginx to be the front, uh, the front end for for the road ba- round robin load balancing, and then point that points to two instances of IS Express, and then flips between the two, mm-hmm. and that's done with a single command from Rake. You have some other technologies in here You're using Canopy. Yes, Canopy is a UI automation uh, framework built on top of Selenium, and uh, what what Can- uh, Canopy is actually built in F Sharp. And the reason I chose F Sharp, uh, I actually worked with uh, one of my colleagues, and we chose F Sharp primarily because of its uh, DSL capabilities. It, you can write some really nice uh, domain-specific languages in F Sharp, and on top of that, you get C Sharp interoperability. So those two things put together um, allowed us to write a really nice DSL on top of Selenium. Now, for those people that have done UI automation and Selenium automation, what you might find, uh, especially with such a with single-page applications and a lot of the asynchronous stuff that we're doing inside of websites these days, Selenium is really um, aggressive on trying to find uh, DOM elements. So you might say, hey, Selenium, does this DOM element exist in the, on this page? And if it does, click it. Well, uh, Selenium will immediately try to find that DOM element and then fail. And uh, what, what we ended up doing with Canopy was to build a stabilization layer. So Canopy uh, is responsible for trying multiple times to make sure that DOM element exists, making sure it's visible to the, to the, from a human standpoint and it's not overlaid by another div. And a lot of those things are built in as a stabilization layer inside of Canopy itself. So what you get is a really nice uh, DSL where you can just say click and then give it a name of a CSS selector or, a, or, or an element, and it'll just work outside, out of the box. And, you know, we didn't start off this conversation t- started talking about single-page applications. We were just talking about MVC. Right. Why single page applications? Well, single page applications, that seems like the future, right? Everything, wherever you go, you see applications that are highly async. Uh, they'll, they'll load, uh, very, very small initial pages and then, um, JavaScript will take over and you'll, it'll bring in small pieces of the page and add DOM elements and, you know, all this other stuff. And what I, what I found was a lot of the things that MVC provided out of the box weren't, weren't, 
too receptive to uh, to MVC apl- uh, single page applications, primarily mm-hmm. like the model binders. So if you try to post a, uh, a JSON payload via jQuery and it's an array of objects, you'll find that the, the default model binders aren't too great at you know fixing fixing that or making that look correct. And so then you have to use like the dollar sign dot ajax uh, overloads and do some jQuery dot stringify and to try to get those model binders to work correctly. Yeah, it sort of undermines the whole point of binding if you have to do all this fiddling. Yeah, and the other the other side is that when it comes time to uh, return JSON, uh, if you have your NED framework model, uh, models and your N-Hibernate models, uh, if you had recursive relations in those or, or self-referencing objects, you would get serialization exceptions, and that became really painful uh, trying to create these DTOs that would that would represent your your model for a specific JSON payload. And uh, what Oak pr- brings to the table is uh, its its own custom serialization that uh, is more intelligent about finding circular references and and bringing back JSON payloads that seem reasonable for consumption by by front ends. I thought that now that uh, Visual Studio 2012 uses JSON.net by mm-hmm. default, a lot of those problems have gone away. Yes, they have. They have uh, this, uh, some of the situations that I that I've dealt with personally have been uh, about uh, breadth first serialization versus depth first. Mm-hmm. So you could have you could have two objects that are uh, that are referenced at uh, by parent entities. So then the question is, which which way do you serialize? Do you do you go depth first and serialize one poco and then serialize the next poco and then when it comes back up to another enumerable element? You'll, you might miss a serialization. So it's, it's more of the idea of, uh, of getting, getting a payload that makes sense for a single page application. So if you're returning an enumerable, you would want a flat enumerable that, that serializes depth, uh, breadth first and then goes into the next property and serializes those things. So you're, you're sort of customizing your serialization based on what, what the type is and what the class is and the application. Right. Right. Yeah, that's pretty smart. Okay. Uh, NSPEC, we need to talk about that because you're using this as well. Right. So, uh, just to, just for a little bit of background on Canopy and NSPEC, the, the whole, and, and to tie a bow around what, what Oak is trying to bring to the table is, is we're dealing with dynamic, uh, dynamic languages, right? We're dealing with dynamic C sharp. We're dealing with prototypical JavaScript, which doesn't have that compile time checking. So the, the things that Oak is bringing to the table is, are things like Canopy for your UI automation and then NSPEC for your, for your testing automation. The way, the way you mitigate a lot of the risks with uh, with dynamic typing is to have a good test suite and have a good feedback loop. Mm-hmm. So Canopy Canopy covers the uh, gives a good safety net for all your front end JavaScript and all your UI automation, and then NSpec is that same safety net for for your um, your C sharp code. Right. So so NSpec is a is a testing framework. It's um it's a BDD style behavior driven development style testing framework, and um, it's been uh, it's it's Based off of RSpec, RSpec is uh, the, a, a testing framework based on um, available on Ruby, and the premise behind NSpec is that it's it's a really low ceremony testing framework that allows you to def- uh, it define classes and define test methods without a lot of use of attributes, without a lot of um, using inheritance for classes. You can actually define methods inside of blocks and do some nice nesting and uh, use some uh, re- actual words. So right. these these days we're, we write test methods that have underscores or title casing to try to explain that stuff out. And what NSPEC gives you is that ability to actually write a string that says exactly what you want it to do right. and then write some tests around it. I like, given the world has not come to an end, hello world should be hello world. Yep. 
<laughs> it just makes sense. It just makes sense. Uh, and and what Oak what Oak does is it brings Canopy and Inspec. It brings those two testing frameworks together, and then adds a feedback loop around that. So anytime you save a file, uh, the the piece of Canopy know that well, okay, he changed a CS file. So what that means is that I need to run these impacted tests. Or he changed a JavaScript file, which means I need to synchronize the website or redeploy and, and uh, does a lot of those things for you. And that's another thing that uh, with this continuous feedback loop is that as, as I was developing MVC applications, I found that I was going back and forth, right? I would go into debug mode uh, to try to debug some stuff. And then if I try to make a change inside of, a, inside of a, the solution, I would have to stop the debugger, you know, and then go back and make the change and then rebuild and then look at the website. Right. And I, I just didn't see that in uh, in the Node.js communities and the uh, Rails communities. They can make a change to a file immediately and then refresh the page and see that uh, see that uh, captured. So uh, mm. a part of a part of Oak is called SpecWatcher, and what SpecWatcher does is it looks it's basically a really simple file system watcher, and it looks for changes to C sharp files or to JavaScript files or CSS files or HTML files, and does the intelligent thing. So if it's a C-sharp file, it'll compile for you and redeploy, if, and it'll run impacted tests. And if it's a JavaScript file, it can just you know redeploy that and synchronize the file to a, to the deployment directory without any issues. Yeah. And you know, it just does all those things for you without you having to do shortcut keys and yeah, any of that crazy stuff. What doesn't this thing do? I mean, yeah, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I could see being in a future version of MVC. Yeah, I mean, so the, the the funny thing is that when you get all these feedback loops going, uh, there's times where uh, where I can just open up a, a Sublime Text or, or Vim and make my changes in there and save the file, and then it builds and redeploys. So I, I, there are times where I just don't even open up the editor anymore, and I just I just work in um, some of the other editors that are available. Well, and the fact that you're file watching means you don't really care how the file right. got edited, just that it's changed. Right, and then a rake comes in, and since since all the build automation has been externalized to a rake script, uh, all those things like building a solution or redeploying the website or any of those things are just available via the command line. You, you know, so much of this sounds like a, a sort of classical Ruby development model. It almost makes me wonder, like, why did you introduce C Sharp to the mix? So that's a that's a great question, and it's and it's not you love the first C -sharp. time. <laughs> I love C Sharp. Uh, <laughs> and who doesn't? Who doesn't? Who doesn't? And, and, and I've been asked that question, uh, you know, multiple times. Like, why not just go to Rails or why not go to Node.js? And I, I think I think the underlying issue is that is that we we as developers need to understand that it's it's becoming a polyglot world. You have to you, you don't have to know a, uh, the depth and every nook and cranny of every language, but you have to understand that we're going to be working with languages across the board and. Um, you just you you learn the sweet spots and you use the sweet spots as as they as they come to you. Now, from the C sharp standpoint, we've we've uh, C sharp has become uh, imperative. It's become functional with extension methods. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got capabilities to interop with with other languages. And the the last leg of that whole C sharp language construct is dynamic. We just haven't really leveraged all the dynamic capabilities in C sharp. And that's what I want. That's what I want to, you know, raise awareness of is that there are benefits to using using a hybrid approach. There are benefits to using dynamic typing. We just haven't really taken advantage of it. And well, I'm not going to deny that it's a polyglot world, but clearly it is. The question is, you know, why C sharp? And you say here, well, because C sharp's got the sweet spot. But so, what for you is the sweet spot? 
So for for me, it's we we as a .NET developer, we we tend to be in more corporate environments. So the the change, the velocity of change, or the velocity for for change, isn't as quick as you would see in other environments. Mm-hmm. And you have you have a lar- a large C sharp code base that that could benefit from X Y and Z. And you can't just abandon abandon that code base and just jump to something else. Unfortunately, that that isn't always the option. Right. So how how what ways what capabilities exist in C sharp for us to bring in a lot of this goodness that we get from uh, that we that I see in other languages and uh, start start reaping the benefits of those things. Plus, you got Link. Come on, <laughs> you got Link. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, if, I I feel like your answer there, Amir is mm-hmm. a hindsight answer. Oh, I'm helping other people. I think the honest answer is you love C sharp. I okay, I'll admit it. I love I love C sharp. <laughs> yeah. And I just care, you know, and you're not the first person to say that. It's okay, man. You're not alone. Okay. All right. There's okay. a bunch Apparently Miguel Diacaza loves C sharp. Oh yeah. <laughs> so and I just find it fascinating that there's this a, a not only is a passion for the language agnostic to the platform, right? Agnostic to the framework, which is just fascinating to me. It's just like, oh, uh, I like the language and I'm going to use it in a way it really wasn't intended for, but it does good things there. <laughs> Hiring hey, Anders hey, was the, the best thing Microsoft ever did. Hey, the dynamic keyword is part of the part of the C sharp for us, so it right. was intended for this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and it, and I've but I've never felt like Anders gave the dynamic mindset enough love. The DLR is sort oh, of yeah. is a residual of John Lamb. Yeah, and, John Lamb and Huguenin, you know, the Iron Python guy, and you know, really smart guys, and they're ultimately the ones that that pushed the DLR in there. And, and I'm glad that that Anders latched onto it. But you know, Anders clearly went has gone. He's obviously been absorbed by Roslyn, and let's not even talk about TypeScript. But yeah, right. There was this sort of point where you're, you're like, okay, well, C Sharp's got all the key features in this static imperative world. Now where are you going to go? And it, it's adopted a little functional over here, and it's adopted a little dynamic over there. And and I'm worried that it's sullying the language. And then a guy like you comes along like oh no that's a good thing i like what you're doing here like this is not hurting anybody and you know just just something to think about too uh remember with extension methods imagine imagine if the capability to create extension methods was there but then uh, microsoft didn't take that extra step to actually create the i enumerable or right. any of the for each extension methods where would extension methods be today if if those uh, that additional api wasn't created for us absolutely Right, so it's that same deal as the dynamic was created, but, you know, they didn't take it far enough. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. Guess what time it is? Ah, uh, it must be that happy time again. What? Time to polish my watch? <laughs> no, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Before we do that, need to tell you that Telerik Kendo UI is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. And now Kendo UI comes with server-side wrappers for ASP.NET MVC. You'll be able to produce awesome HTML5 apps powered by Kendo UI without being forced to write JavaScript. Simply program on the server, and the Kendo UI wrappers will handle the HTML and JavaScript. You'll have fun, and your boss will be amazed. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 30-day trial with full support. And now someone's going to get a copy of Kendo UI in their DevCraft Complete. That's right, which is a $2,000 value. Everything Telerik makes in one box. And today's winner is Drew Peterson from Sycamore, Illinois. Ah, congratulations, Drew. Golf clap for you. Yes, yes, lovely. Very nice, yes. very nice. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to the .NET Rock site and click on the big Get Free Stuff link. 
Every show, we give away a DevCraft Complete and sometimes some other stuff as well. That's right. And every December, we're giving away $5,000 worth of technology. And uh, last year was our first year doing that. This year is going to be even better because, you know, stuff just keeps getting cheaper. Hey, uh, Amir, if you had five grand to spend on technology, toys now, you know, whatever, what would you buy? Oh, man. Uh, definitely the Retina. <laughs> All right. <laughs> a, a, a big Retina Mac? Yes, a big re- the the Retina MacBook Pro, and just sink the entire five grand into it, and put in another thousand because it costs so much. Oh, put all the SSDs <laughs> in and everything. I saw a guy at CodeMash. I can't remember who it was. We're not only running a re- that big Retina Mac, but running it native resolution with Windows Eight. Oh man! <laughs> and then running Studio on it, and he yeah. could open three code windows side by side <laughs> and see them completely. Because the, and the, that text is small. I mean, I'm in my middle 40s now. I couldn't read it. It was no. too small. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to see that stuff. That's funny, though. Well, let's talk about data access validation and things like that. What do we get in uh, – you're doing some things with, in, in Oak for this as well. Yes. So, uh, again, it goes back to the idea of can we, can we just take that JavaScript object and save it to the database? And in Oak, you can do that. So the idea there is uh, I actually created a fork of Massive. Um, are you guys familiar with Massive? Yeah. Yep. So well, it's a, tell, it's the, a di- tell the listener anyway. So Massive was a, is a really lightweight ORM that uh, Rob Connery created. And uh, he took the idea of being able to take a form collection from, from MVC or a dictionary of, you know, string object and slamming that right into, uh, right into the database, inferring the columns based on the properties on your objects. And that was a really, uh, that's a really good idea. And I expanded on that and said, well, can we, can we get it working with, um, just expando object? Expando object is a class that's part of a system.dynamic object. Mm-hmm. Or system, uh, it's part of the system.net framework the namespace, the DLR. And I tried expando object and that worked really well. But then I found out that it, the expando object and the form collection objects were both typeless objects. So I, I like to make a delinea- delineation between, um, typeless and dynamic objects. Uh, anonymous types, expando object, form collection, data sets, all those things are typeless objects. And they don't have, you can't ask, are you a person? Because they'll always return, no, I'm a data set or no, I'm an expando object. Mm. And that was, that was what I was, uh, uh, hitting up against that wall was that these things are typeless. I really am not leveraging dynamic typing. And that's where, and that's where I've augmented, um, uh, massive to understand dynamic typing and dynamic objects, primarily objects that, that, uh, work with Gemini. So wow. you can actually, so you can actually create a person object that inherits from Gemini, which makes it dynamic. And when, when, uh, when something comes in, when a payload comes in, you can turn that into a person and then save that to the, to the database. Wow. And of course, you know, because it's an object, you can do all your sort of validation and, and, uh, business rules and all that kind of stuff on it. Right. So the way the way validation works is uh, again, it's using this plugin model. The object itself really doesn't know how to validate itself. But then you come in and say, "Well, there's this other class here that knows how to do validation. I'm going to attach all of its behavior and all of its methods to you." So then, person gets uh, validation methods, but the implementation of the validation is independent of the class. So you get a nice API that. Directly off a person, you can say person dot is valid or get errors or first error, but the implementation could actually be in an independent object. And this, when, when I started doing this, that's when the light bulb went off for dynamic typing. Dynamic typing gives you the ability to separate your concerns in separate objects. 
and then bring it all together in a nice API on the on the construct that you're working with. So, what is your relationship to CoffeeScript? I know you've been programming I it a love, little bit. Yeah, I love CoffeeScript. It's great. It's great. Um, and for the, that matter, TypeScript. TypeScript, I haven't looked at. I haven't given it the attention that it, uh, that it deserves. Uh, TypeScript and Dart. Dart. I, I, I definitely want to jump into those things and see what see what's happening there. Uh, but I haven't. I haven't been able to give it the attention that it that it rightfully deserves. But yeah, I guess the question is how much time you spend coding in JavaScript when you're building stuff here, right? Oh, you're, quite you're a really bit. One. Oh, okay. Quite a bit, and and the uh, the idea behind that, and that's why I decided to go with CoffeeScript. Again, the 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 interesting thing with CoffeeScript was that when I started doing CoffeeScript, uh, the web workbench for Visual Studio wasn't actually uh, wasn't actually available, or or any of the integration uh, points. So there was actually a Ruby gem that would take CoffeeScript and convert it to JavaScript. So I created a rake task that would uh, look at my uh, look at all of the CoffeeScript files in my Visual Studio solution and then convert them to JavaScript and deploy those. About you know two years before before Web Workbench actually started creating uh, bringing that capability to, uh, to Visual Studio. So with CoffeeScript, it it uh, it was really nice because it added a just addition some some uh, nice little constructs to to JavaScript for reaches. Uh, it had it had good um, uh, list. Uh, List evaluations and um, nice little syntax uh, syntax enhancements to JavaScript itself, and it made it a really uh, it made it made it to where I wrote less code and hence make less mistakes and still uh, come out with some really nice looking JavaScript. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small, especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of Active Reports. Oh yeah. Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Component 1. Smarter Components for Smarter Developers. Another thing that we should talk about a little bit more because you sort of uh, blew through it, but all of the the frameworks that you can use on the on the uh, on the JavaScript side, you know, Backbone and Knockout and all of those things, you work. Uh, you have some specific code to look for payloads from those things, right? The the great thing was uh, there's actually a sample app with Oak. It's called Task Rabbits, and it's a it's an app, if you go to the GitHub page for for Oak, you'll see that it's one of the sample apps, and it's got instructions of how to uh, build all that out. And as I was developing Oak, I wanted to make sure that it was amicable to you know the the frameworks that existed like Backbone, Knockout, and Angular. And what you'll find is that you have the same backend that can serve up uh, content for all all three of those applications. Hmm. And uh, I give examples for for each one, showing showing how you can interact with it. And of course, plain Jane jQuery is is there also. And um, it it all came down to just iterating on the model binder a few times on the dynamic model binder that I've created to to get all those things working correctly. Jeez. So not not too much effort, not too much effort there, surprisingly. And, and and you know we we talk about Oak as this massive thing, but Oak probably is um is probably about four or five thousand lines of code. And uh, when you install the install the package uh, across uh, probably ten to fifteen classes, when you install the Oak and NuGet package, it actually comes down as source inside of your inside of your application. 
Well, what really is hitting me here is that, you know, this is the polyglot's polyglot of technology. Like you're, you're taking all of these existing things and just sort of make them talk to each other, yeah, which I think is just together. genius. It works out. It really works out well. Yeah, you, I was you, actually thinking that the story here is not Oak. The story here is this frictionless development environment. This yeah. way of building web apps using the best of all of these different tools together. And then you had to build Oak to finish it. That, that, that was uh, the one gap I've got so that I get to use C sharp is right here. Yeah. Right. I'll fill that, you know, fill in that gap and then I'm happy. Right. <laughs> I'm, right. I, you know, uh, for me, I'm now focusing more and more on the DevOps story. So I noticed that you you talk about growl for continuous testing as part of your stack here. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, there's almost, you've got a sense of an almost DevOps-like story. You haven't really got to the ops, but you've gotten into that highly automated flow to the deployed app. Right. Uh, talk about Growl. So Growl is, uh, is a little notification tool that's avail available for, for Windows. And uh, the file watcher, what happens is that when a file changes, it will, your little assistant will, will tell you that, hey, I did this for you. And that's where, where Growl comes in. Uh, so instead of using compiler or the compiler window to check for compile, uh, compiler errors or test failures or, or what have you, Growl fills that service for you. So you could see um, if you change a file, it will let you know, hey, this test failed. Uh, because of that change that you made, just letting you know without right. being being too intrusive about it. And back to your DevOps idea, because all this is is uh, uh, interacting, Growl just interacts with SpecWatcher, and SpecWatcher interacts with Rake, which is your build automation. So you could enhance all these things to to tune your own development story. And because Rake is uh, something that could be executed from the command line, that gives you a springboard into into automating more of the DevOps stuff. So you go in and say, well, I, I really like how it deploys to IS, but it would be nice if it uploaded this FTP file or did this other thing for me also. So then you create the rake scripts to, to do that and then keep keep a nice little bow around your tuned development lifecycle. Absolutely. I mean, just getting tighter and tighter on how, you know, we haven't really talked about the ops part of this, and we can get there if you, you care to, but... To be a respons responsible dev side in that rapid iteration, I need all this automation so that anytime a change is made, we're testing everything and getting to assembly. I just never considered that Rake would be the driver for that. That's a Ruby tool, man. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and I've had situations where I've had to do PowerShell. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Rake can shell out to PowerShell. So there, there are things where I need to, you know, restart a server or maybe recommission a VM or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you have your custom PowerShell script that can do the interoperability or the, do the P exec to some remote server. And then Rake can just shell out to that and then, and then come back. Right. So, and you're, you're hitting on exactly the point I was going to go to when you get, we get to the more serious testing infrastructure. It's like, I need to light several VMs up. Right. And set up a yeah. bunch of instances and then deploy these new pieces of code to each one of them, then run that set of tests and then, you know, push those errors back if they occur. And then <laughs> the IT guy comes out and then clean up your mess. <laughs> right. Shut them down. <laughs> Shut Destroy them, down. them. Throw away the files. <laughs> And, and the nice thing is that once you get a team that's really familiar with uh, with Rake, they'll come in and make their own Rake scripts. So the the automation that they're doing, they'll they'll just say, "Hey, I've added this new Rake task." And Rake has capabilities to do searching, and then you can you can describe the task and 
define dependencies and all that other good stuff. So you get the entire team contributing to to this tune, this tuning mechanism, and then hmm. eventually uh, bringing up a developer uh, is such a quick process. You know, they they install Visual Studio, go to lunch, come back, and then run Rake, and everything else just you know comes up comes online. Well, getting to a working build, you know, I, th- I think we oh, yeah. we. People think that, oh, I've got the source code. I'm good to go. Mm. It's like, no, if you no. don't have a working build environment, you don't have anything. Right. Like, it's about getting a working build. I'm just still wrestling with this idea that you're installing Ruby to get to Rake. Is this really the best build tool we could be using for the web? So, um, and I've, I've been asked that question uh, primarily with PSOCI. PSOCI is PowerShell Rake. Yep. And, uh, and the, the biggest concern I have with with PSOCI is the PowerShell itself. It, it it feels good as a from a script standpoint, but when you start getting into more object oriented constructs, uh, it's it's not as as um, concise as what you would get from from using Ruby. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's the concern that that I've had is that uh, there are we've have we've made enhancements to our Rake scripts to a point where we want to get the uh, with the the last good build. To, to do our deployment. And instead of doing all the FTP or TCP stuff right inside of the rake script, we've created objects, uh, ob- we've taken an object oriented approach and actually created a class called new CI get last build and added some nice methods to that. That, that does all the, all the glue stuff. So when a developer comes in and has to enhance one of those rake scripts, they're not really concerned with, you know, IP addresses or anything like that. They're just calling methods on objects that, that pull that information in. So that that's where uh, that's where Rake really shines is that it, it gives your build automation an object oriented DSL that you can start building out. All right, we're three quarters of the way through the show, and we've been all sunshine and unicorns here. So I want to know where the warts are. All right, so the warts, uh, no IntelliSense. Brace yourself, right? <laughs> you don't so, get IntelliSense. So, all right, so even uh, I thought you said you were we could use Visual Studio too with uh, with Oak. You can you can use Visual Studio, uh, but out, out of the box, Visual Studio. As soon as you cast something as dynamic, uh, the properties that are available on that type are no longer inferred by um, by the compiler. So uh, you can install ReSharper. ReSharper will give you some look ahead and with whatever's used in the file mm-hmm. to, to help with that. But uh, you do lose the you you do lose the capability to use IntelliSense, and um, that can that's been a deterrent at times. It, it can get a little scary there. Um, another thing is that it feel it, it could be daunting to think you know you have to install Ruby and F Sharp and learn all these languages. Um, I try to do I try to do my best to give you a really good hint. You know this is all you need to know to use this, or this is all you need to know to use that. And once you become comfortable, you can dip into it. But that that could be overwhelming at times. I've seen people come to the uh, Oak uh, the Oak web page and immediately when they see to install Ruby, they've they you know they kind of shy away from it. So yeah, I'll, no, that's my reaction too. Like, what is this? What I is thought you were talking about C sharp or JavaScript, and you've got some Ruby here. And the first step is install Ruby, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> but you know, after the, after those hurdles, you know, uh, there's an interactive tutorial that's actually part of the Oak solution. So as if you follow the steps on the website and bring it bring it down, it will take you through creating a simple blogging app uh, as you're as you're using the feedback loop. So you actually start with the feedback loop and you'll code C sharp. And when you refresh the page, it'll tell you the next step. So it's really cool uh, going through it from that standpoint. And um, but that, but that will be the biggest thing. And what I usually say about the IntelliSense is that you still have IntelliSense when you're using any of the BCL. Right, the base common libraries are still there. 
you can always cast it back to an object, to a statically type object, which is why it's called Gemini, because it's got the hybrid capability there. So you can cast it back to a statically type object and get some of the static methods outside of, out of the object. You can use implicit operators in C Sharp uh, to actually convert an object from one type to another. But uh, that would be the biggest, uh, I think, hesitation is that you're you're giving you're giving up your static compilation for a lot of your domain. And um, what I'm hoping is that the continuous testing and the feedback loops that are in play will help mitigate a lot of the risks that mm-hmm. exist there. Well, an awful lot of that sort of breaks down in the polyglot world anyway. You don't have consistent IntelliSense. You don't have one compiler anymore. Different pieces are getting compiled in different ways. That's right. I mean, if you're a JavaScript developer, which is why I think you would like this, you know, you're, uh, then you're not used to it anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, it's nice to have. And, and uh, JS Lint, there's a lot of editors out there, uh, Vim, Vim particularly, where I use them. You can hook up JS Lint where it can give you some, you know, nice feedback inside of the editor itself. But uh, it, it, it's just one of those things that you have to give up um, when you when you start doing this. But surprisingly, you have so little code that you're maintaining. You'll be surprised at how little, how much, you know, how few of the lines of code that you actually write to get a, a working solution. All right, so I'm completely new to Oak. How do I get started? All right, so the way you get started, uh, you actually got to install Ruby, right? You got Ruby installed, check that off the list. And uh, at that point, you're going to run a command called warmup. And what it's going to do is it's going to actually d- uh, download a Visual Studio solution that's already hydrated with Oak. And it's, from the cam- command line, you just type in warmup, give it the URL of, of uh, where the Visual Studio template exists, give it a name, and without opening Visual Studio or setting up a new project, you have a solution that's, uh, that's Oakified. After that, you run Okerized. After that, <laughs> got a little Okification. Yep. See, I need I need to put all these down and just put them on the side. And now you are bristling with oakness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, so you have this um, you have this Visual Studio template that gets downloaded to your machine. It sets up all the references. You don't even have to open up NuGet or install any packages. It's it's just ready there for, for you to go. Then you run Rake to build your application, Rake server to start up IIS Express, and then you start up your solution and then you start coding. And what you'll find is that um, the feedback loop starts up uh, with, a, with a batch file. And whenever you save a file, uh, things start deploying. Growl will come up letting you know that the build has been performed and the website's been updated. And you start getting into this feedback loop and in the interactive tutorial, we'll, we'll talk you through the rest of the application and, and get you working from there. Another thing that I've added to Oak is when you when you do data access or when when an HTTP request comes in, I've actually hooked into the IIS Express console window. So oh, if cool. you bring so if you bring that up, you'll actually see the JSON payloads that are going over the wire and the SQL that was executed based on those JSON payloads. Awesome. And, and exceptions. Uh, what I really what's really frustrating with async programming uh, over JavaScript is that you'll get an exception and then nothing will come back. So then you're bringing up Chrome or something like that to try to figure out exactly what exception occurred during during the uh, exchange, but now it's just right inside of your IS Express window. Doesn't get any better than that. Yep, it's just it's a really tuned development cycle, and and if you don't like the static the dynamic typing part of it, you can at least use the independent modules in your own application. SpecWatcher is a separate uh, NuGet package, shows, shows the rake.net integration, and all that is available on the wiki, so you can go to the wiki and see all the different uh, packages that are available and then bring them in independently into your own application. So what's on your to-do list for, uh, for Oak? And no, I don't mean the to-do list app. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a to-do list app, by the way. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, on my to do list, uh, I there's I want to do some more enhancements to Gemini itself. Um, there's there's service stack that's available out there. There's Nancy. Uh, see if I can integrate the dynamic capabilities of Gemini into into other other frameworks and see what benefits can come out of that. And then of course continue um, iterating on Oak itself. Ember JS recently uh, hit release candidate one, so I'm going to create a sample app with that. Make sure that that looks all uh, all nice and green and and at that point, it's it's just a matter of getting developer feedback and and uh, interacting with whoever whoever's interested in it. I'm always on Twitter. Re- send me a reply. I'd be happy to jump on Skype and you know talk to you about the framework and and um, see if we can get some contributions going. Has anyone from Microsoft contacted you about it? Um, I've I've actually you know spoken with John Galloway on Herding Code uh, for for Oak also, but um, I don't think anyone's from Microsoft ex- explicitly contacted me about it. Do you expect them to? I don't know. I use Ruby. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, at the same time, all this stuff's on GitHub, so anybody can pull it down and fork it and tinker with it, whatever they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been, um, it's been over a year and a half with the work right now and over 600 commits to the, to the source code. I I wonder what the goo thinks of it. Oh, man. I'd be, that'd be great if you take a look at it. Yeah. Let's see if we can get him to leave a comment on the website. Awesome. All right. Yeah, have a good look at it. Yeah, well, this is great. Thank you, Amir. This is good no stuff. No problem. I'm sure you've uh, got a lot of new fans. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, it's been great talking to you, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm